Welcome to the Educational Renaissance Podcast, where we promote a rebirth of ancient wisdom for the modern era. We seek to inspire educators by fusing the best of modern research with the insights of the great philosophers of education. Join us in the great conversation and share with a friend or colleague to keep the Renaissance spreading. Jason Barney here for Educational Renaissance. Today, I want to share with you about educating for self-control, part two, the link between attention and willpower. Well, in the first part of this two-part series on educating for self-control, I talked about how self-control is a lost Christian virtue. And I laid out a case for the importance of self-control from the New Testament citing Paul's famous fruit of the spirit and Peter's not as famous virtue list in the first uh, chapter of second Peter. Then we delved into the roots of self-control as a concept deriving from early Greek philosophers before then turning to what it might look like to develop a school for self-control, rethinking how our schools should be set up if supporting self-control is a chief goal. In particular, uh, we referenced the British educator Charlotte Mason as she discussed the gradual fortifying of the will which many a schoolboy undergoes. She talked about this in her chapter called The Way of the Will from volume six towards a philosophy of education. In this talk, we'll engage with Mason some more, but as we'll see, the results of research on self-control and willpower from neuroscience and psychology actually give us more reason than ever to focus on developing self-control in our schools. The science also confirms a couple of tactics for strengthening willpower that were advocated so long ago by traditional educators like Mason. First, let's unpack the benefits of self-control. Well, as Christians, we may be inclined to think of self-control as only a spiritual grace, and it certainly is that. It's listed as the final fruit of the Spirit, after all. But like many Christian virtues, there's a common grace manifestation that is extremely beneficial, even from a secular perspective. I think this is what we should expect, since we know that God set up the order of reality in such a way that acting or living in accordance with certain virtues will, in general, bring blessing. The book of Proverbs is littered with examples to this effect. Now, in his famous or the famous marshmallow study from the 1970s, a Stanford University psychologist invited four-year-olds into a room cleared with distractions. Then each one of them, one at a time, was told that they could have one marshmallow now or if they waited for the experimenter to return from an errand, they could have a second marshmallow as well. Now, as we might predict, some of these four-year-olds decided to skip the offer and immediately popped 
the single marshmallow into their mouths. About two-thirds, however, tried to wait out the grueling 15 minutes, sitting alone in an empty room with no books or toys to distract themselves. Now, another third caved partway through the time, but there was a final third that made it through and received the reward of a second marshmallow. Now, as we might expect, the ones who resisted the lure of the sweet ended up having higher scores on measures of executive control, particularly the reallocation of attention. And I'm citing here um, Daniel Goleman's best-selling book, Focus, The Hidden Driver of Achievement. Now, what's surprising, I think, and fascinating was that these same children were tracked afterward for measures of success in their life, their health, wealth, avoidance of criminal behavior, etc. And their self-control was found to be a key predictor of positive life outcomes, whether or not they were in that one-third that was able to resist that whole 15 minutes. Now, this study has been confirmed numerous times by other studies, including one that was done in New Zealand. Goldman here summarizes in his book, Focus, the big shock. Statistical analysis found that a child's level of self-control is every bit as powerful a predictor of her adult financial success and health, and criminal record for that matter, as are social class, wealth of family of origin, or IQ. Willpower emerged as a completely independent force in life success. In fact, for financial success, self-control in childhood proved a stronger predictor than either IQ or social class of the family of origin. It's important to concede that self-control isn't everything. Social class, wealth, and IQ do play a role in a person's worldly success, but not the overwhelmingly determinative role that ideologues and fatalists tend to think it does. Self-control and willpower enable most children to overcome various challenges through focusing on achievable goals and working on improving their situation and abilities. And I think this is why a growth mindset is so important and can fuel efforts of self-control. After all, if you don't think that you can improve and grow, you aren't likely to engage in the hard effort to deny yourself immediate pleasure or recreation for the sake of a goal. Self-control or willpower must be exercised for many different types of goals, whether they be lofty spiritual goals like holiness and purity, or more mundane worldly goals like doing well in school, fulfilling your obligations at work, or maintaining your health. As Goldman explains, high self-control predicts not just better grades, but also a good emotional adjustment. 
better interpersonal skills, a sense of security and adaptability. Now, among psychologists, self-control is one of several traits that actually fall under the heading of conscientiousness, which is itself a major predictor of success. He describes conscientiousness this way, conscientiousness seems as powerful a boost in the long run as fancy schools, SAT tutors, and pricey educational summer camps. Don't underestimate the value of practicing the guitar or keeping that promise to feed the guinea pig and clean its cage. This last statement from Goldman illustrates an immediate takeaway for us as parents and educators. Sometimes we can be so focused on our students' external development through their many activities that we fail to hold them personally accountable for faithfulness and conscientious fulfillment of their obligations. We fail to enforce rules and discipline them. The knowledge and skills they quote learn in school and extracurriculars may not in fact be nearly so important as the virtues and character traits they cultivate along the way. Instead of focusing on making sure they succeed at all of these external goals, we might actually need to let them fail so that they can learn the deeper lesson of the need for virtue. Now, otherwise, we might be robbing them of the most valuable attainments, even from a worldly perspective. Dr. Daniel Levitin, the James McGill Professor of Psychology and Behavioral Neuroscience at McGill University summarizes the value of conscientiousness, including self-control, this way. He says, conscientiousness comprises industriousness, self-control, stick to and a desire for order. And it is in turn the best predictor of many important human outcomes including mortality, longevity, educational attainment, and a host of criteria related to career success. Conscientiousness is associated with better recovery outcomes following surgery and transplants. Conscientiousness in early childhood is associated with positive outcomes decades later. And that's from his book, The Organized Mind. Great, large tome, incredibly great book. So the benefits, according to all this research, of self-control are many. But how do we actually cultivate self-control in our students or ourselves, for that matter? Tactics for developing self-control. Let's look at some tactics for developing self-control. Well, we've already mentioned that simply focusing on the virtues that an activity could foster rather than simply the knowledge or skills alone is one of the first steps to cultivating self-control. In a way, the mere habit of attending to focusing on virtues as a key outcome for our children is half the battle. The classical tradition made virtue the main goal of education and let the chips fall where they may on less important matters. 
Modern education, on the other hand, is often so concerned with the perfect delivery of information in incrementally graded skill development that we can tend to miss the forest for the trees. And I would point you over to one of my articles or lectures on the topic of Bloom's taxonomy, particularly the one entitled When Bloom's Gets Ugly, Cutting the Heart Out of Education. Often I would say that the individual coaching that it would take to come alongside a student and support him or her in taking steps for developing self-control seems like the long way around. How much easier and simpler for teachers and administrators to just have this impersonal and objective system of grades and punishments to met out to the masses of students. And while the administration of fair consequences is important, when it's used to avoid the need for relationships and for personal coaching toward improvement, it can become ineffective and I would say even counterproductive. The shortest way to our goal, if our goal is a student's development of self-control, is to work personally and individually with them on practicing these tactics and acquiring the habits that enable the virtue of self-control. Are you ready to take your classroom or school to the next level? Here at Educational Renaissance, we want to equip you with skills and practices that will help you achieve your goals as educators. Join us for our next live webinar and take a deep dive into the topics you've learned about through our blog posts, podcasts, books, and videos. Learn practical skills and get your questions answered to level up your classroom or school. Simply sign up for our next live webinar on our webinar page at educationalrenaissance.com. Learn more about upcoming webinars or find other downloadable content. If you believe teaching is a craft, then join us for our next webinar where you can be apprenticed to gain valuable skills and practices. Sign up at educationalrenaissance.com. So then what are the tactics for developing self-control? Well, based on modern research, Charlotte Mason, some ancient Greek wisdom and the Bible, I've come up with two main tactics that I wanna talk through today. First, draw up a battle plan. And second, create a diversion. And before I jump in on those two tactics of drawing up a battle plan and creating a diversion, I just wanna um, encourage you, if you haven't checked out Dr. Patrick Egan's A Guide to Implementing Habit Training, that would be a great companion to this idea of self-control because we got to come alongside these students and help them train them in habits that ultimately lead to self-control. And you'll see what I'm talking about as I unpack these two willpower tactics. So willpower tactic one, draw up a battle plan. In a sense, the most obvious tactic for developing self-control in a particular area is to make a plan. As long as your brain is fuzzy about what is actually off limits 
or what new positive habit you're trying to establish, it's going to be nigh impossible to exercise self-control or willpower. Psychologists call this act of clarifying the need what to exercise self-control about, making, quote, bright lines, bright lines. If a person is trying to lose weight and their resolution is something vague like eat healthier or eat less dessert, they are unlikely to be successful in the moment when impulse is pushing for just one more brownie. This is because of how self-control works in our brains. Imagine the children trying to resist the marshmallows in front of them. The executive control centers of their brain have to reallocate attention from the tempting marshmallow in front of them to the clear goal of a second one later. And from that to other matters so that they don't continuously focus on the possibility of popping that tempting marshmallow into their mouths. As Daniel Goleman explains, executive attention holds the key to self-management. This power to direct our focus onto one thing and to ignore others lets us bring to mind our waistline when we spot those quarts of cheesecake brownie ice cream in the freezer. This small choice point harbors the core of willpower, the essence of self-regulation. Drawing up a battle plan for self-control is the first and most crucial tactic for regulating ourselves, since it gives our brain clear marching orders. Bright lines enable us to know when we've crossed the line into indulgence. In the synopsis of her philosophy, Charlotte Mason discussed what she calls the way of the will and described this process as distinguishing between desire and decision, or I want and I will. She says, children should be taught A, to distinguish between I want and I will, B, that the way to will effectively is to turn our thoughts from that which we desire but do not will. Effective willpower involves using those executive control centers to turn our attention from our immediate desire to the predetermined battle plan. For example, the video game or Netflix addict has to commit to a definite time period, like 30 minutes or a single show at night, and then set an alarm that gives a clear signal that it is time to stop. If your executive control center is arguing in the moment with your impulsive desires, it has to work double time, not just at refocusing your attention on your goals, but also at coming up with a plan. Overstretched in this way, it is less likely to conquer your more impulsive flesh with all of its rationalizations. So drawing up a battle plan, could also be called making a pre-commitment. This could be as basic as deciding when to check email during the day so as not to be lured through your smartphone into the time-wasting clickbait of the internet and away from the task at hand. Now the classic example of a battle plan or pre-commitment 
is Odysseus. Having been warned beforehand of the siren song by the sorceress Circe, Odysseus was able to prepare. Odysseus makes a pre-commitment by stopping his sailors' ears with wax so that they won't hear the sirens. And in order to allow himself the opportunity of hearing them without succumbing to their deadly lure, he had them tie him to the mast, thereby making it physically impossible for him to alter his prior decision. Odysseus's battle plan worked. Parents and teachers can help their children in this tactic by recognizing an area in which they are in need of willpower support. The next step is having a supportive and understanding conversation with the student about their weakness in this area. If approached tactfully, most students will recognize the need for growth and not resent your intrusion, especially if you emphasize that you're on their side and want to help and support them. At this point, the conversation should turn to developing a battle plan with them. It shouldn't be something that you merely impose on them. And there are two main reasons for this, why you should do this battle plan with them, come up with the ideas with them. First, the goal, after all, is to train them in these self-control tactics so that they can deliberately apply them on their own throughout life. Therefore, the more involvement that the student or child can have in the process, the more that they will learn by experience what it's like to develop strategies for self-regulation. Second, as human beings, we're more motivated to enforce pre-commitments that we participated in coming up with. We have to own our own self-control for those tactics to be most effective. Now, the follow-up to this sort of process is to check in with the student or your child periodically on how the battle plan is going. For instance, if a teacher is, say, working with a student on not impulsively talking out in class or on getting his homework done on time, the teacher might ask the student how the plan's working for him before or after class. A parent might designate time limits for TV or establish guidelines for homework time or practicing that instrument. Charlotte Mason calls this process habit training. And again, the goal should be to develop the will of the child, not to overmanage her or keep her dependent on your every whim. That's willpower tactic number one, draw up a battle plan. Now, and lastly, willpower tactic number two, create a diversion. Unfortunately, given the changes and chances of life, we will all encounter moments when we are caught off our guard by what might be called a surprise attack. The most famous biblical example of this is when Potiphar's wife catches Joseph inside when all the other servants are away. Of course, Joseph had already experienced her advances and was able to do the only thing he could in that scenario, flee. 
Now, in our lives, though, there will be circumstances when even fleeing temptation is not an option, either because of other obligations or because the sudden temptation is more internal than external. In this case, one of the best tactics is to create a diversion. Since temptation to indulgence comes through our attention, if we can successfully divert our attention to other things, the power of the temptation is removed. Goldman discusses how parents typically use this tactic on toddlers who are still developing their emotional self-regulation and have just gotten inordinately upset. We try to distract them, right? He says, attention regulates emotion. This little ploy of selective attention is able to quiet the agitated amygdala. So long as a toddler stays tuned to some interesting object of focus, the distress calms. The moment that the thing loses its fascination, the distress, if it's still held onto by networks in the amygdala, comes roaring back. As Goldman describes, uh, neuroscience has revealed how the brain's networks for selective attention are crucial for the development of self-control. There is a reason why in the marshmallow test, the Stanford research team removed all the toys and games from the room. Many more of the four-year-olds would have likely been able to resist the lure of the marshmallow if they had a room full of potential diversions on hand. Of course, we still have to make the decision to divert our attention from the temptation. And in order to do that, have to recognize it as a temptation, as crossing the bright lines that we've put in place for ourselves, which is why this willpower tactic comes second after we've drawn up a battle plan. And that's why I've addressed the battle plan first, because we need it as this foundation for making the split-second decision to create a diversion when confronted with a surprise attack. Charlotte Mason described this next tactic that we should train our students in as the idea. She says that the best way to turn our thoughts is to think of or do some quite different thing entertaining or interesting. If we have a mind stocked with entertaining or interesting knowledge and pursuits, this is an easy and effective strategy. She develops the idea further in her chapter on the way of the will. She says, when the overstrained will asks for repose, it may not relax to yielding point, but may and must seek recreation diversion. Latin thought, that term diversion, has afforded us beautiful and appropriate names for that which we require. A change of physical or mental occupation is very good, but if no other change is convenient, let us think of something else, no matter how trifling. A new tie, or a new, our next new hat, a storybook we are reading, a friend we hope to see, anything does, so long as we do not suggest to ourselves the thoughts we ought to think on the subject in question. The will does not want the support of arguments, 
but the recreation of rest, change, diversion. In a surprisingly short time, it is able to return to the charge and to choose this day the path of duty, however dull or tiresome, difficult or dangerous. Well, in Greek mythology, Odysseus wasn't the only hero to encounter the sirens. During their quest for the Golden Fleece, Jason and the Argonauts, including a host of the best Greek heroes, happen upon the sirens by chance without having the benefit of preparation. Now, luckily for them, Orpheus is one of the heroes on board. And after some quick thinking, he immediately begins playing and singing his own song louder and louder. In this way, he is able to divert the hero's attention from the siren song enough to avoid crashing into the shoals and falling into the siren's trap. This illustrates how to respond with the power of diversion when your pre-commitments fail and you are surprised by temptation in spite of your best efforts to avoid it entirely. For this to work, though, our minds have to have an Orpheus on board. We and our students have to have richly stocked imaginations full of lively interests. If instead our students are decidedly bored with anything because of living on a diet of low effort entertainment and indulgence, they won't have the resources to divert themselves as a means of self-control. This fact draws attention to the importance of a rich curriculum and the importance of helping our students cultivate enough varied interests and hobbies. In this case, the best defense is a good offense. We need to support ours and our children's creativity and healthy passions. As they say, idleness is the devil's playground. Having something enjoyable and productive to do is a powerful preventative against developing unhealthy and addictive habits. Educating for self-control. Teaching our students these tactics of drawing up a battle plan and creating a diversion, and then actively coaching them in the process will, I think, take us a long way toward educating them for self-control. As Daniel Goldman expressed memorably, Anything we can do to increase children's capacity for cognitive control will help them throughout life. However, the benefits are not just worldly success or positive life outcomes. From a Christian perspective, self-control is a necessary ingredient in sanctification or that holiness without which no one will see the Lord, Hebrews 12, 14. It is important to remember that our own modeling of this virtue is as important as teaching it to our children. We can't lose sight of Paul's famous statement to this effect from 1 Corinthians 9, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. 
Preaching and teaching these things is important, but practicing them even more so. So let's educate ourselves for self-control first and foremost. And then as we grow in these things, sowing to the spirit more and more, we will in time reap a harvest of self-control in ourselves, our families, and our schools. And we might even have more of an influence on our self-indulgent culture. Thanks for listening to this Educating for Self-Control Part 2 lecture today. I hope this has been inspiring and that you'll go away with some helpful tactics for how to educate yourself for self-control, but also to educate those under your care. Remember those two tactics of drawing up a battle plan and creating a diversion. Talking through them and doing that pre-commitment thing with a student can be incredibly helpful for the work of training them in habits so that they can develop virtues and self-control. It's Jason Barney here for Educational Renaissance. Have a great rest of your day.